A lot of killers. You get a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent? 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 They're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative facts. People think I don't like China. I love China. China. China is the new China, by the way. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Hey, welcome to a Trump show. I'm Dennis Trainer Jr. On the show today, Abby Martin, the host of The Empire Files, is going to drop by to follow up on her expose of Steve Bannon. Bannon is all about America first. He hates the fact that China has $10 trillion in you know, U.S. debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I honestly don't put it past Bannon to go to war with China to maybe absolve the debt. Also, Rao Reynolds, frontman of the English rock band Enter Shikari, joins me to talk about the band's current world tour now going through the United States and how their politically progressive message is going over in the Trump era. I think think that's just basically comes down to the philosophy of how how we think about art. Um, You know, we're not doing it's not to us. It's not a commodity. It's not like we want um, we're not doing this to get our music out to be sold and to become big. You know, it's more about getting ideas out there and to um, yeah, to prosper in that sort of realm, really. But first, this is week 10 of Donald Trump's alt-right reign, and Donald Trump is at war. Yes, he's been at war with the truth. Americans cross- well, you know, I, was told, I was given that information. I don't know. I was just given. We had a very, very big margin. I guess my question is, why should Americans trust you when you accuse the information they receive of being fake when you're providing information? That's- well, I don't know. I was given that information. I was gonna, I've, actually, I've seen that information around, but it was a very substantial victory. Do you agree with that? You're the president. Okay, thank you. Donald Trump is also at war with the media. Uh, I think the media. Yeah, I think the media is the opposition party in many ways, and I think he has escalated his bombing campaigns. The U.S.-led coalition has admitted launching airstrikes on March 17th that targeted a crowded neighborhood in Mosul. They are among the deadliest U.S. airstrikes in the region since the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. But what he truly has a zest for, Trump, is his war on the planet, which he escalated with zeal on Tuesday. Didn't he look happy? Together, this group is going to do a truly great job for our country. We have a very, very impressive group here to celebrate the start of a new era in American energy and production and job creation. The action I'm taking today will eliminate federal overreach, restore economic freedom, and allow our companies and our workers to thrive, compete, and succeed on a level playing field for the first time in a long time, fellas. It's been a long time. I'm not just talking about eight years. We're talking about a lot longer than eight years. You people know it maybe better than anybody. The frustrating thing as we watch this unfold is that it's really inconceivable that climate deniers like the Trumps and the Pruitts and the Tillersons and the Rick Perrys of the world don't believe that human-induced climate change will certainly become a catastrophe for more and more of us, as it is already a catastrophe for many. It's that they choose to play for the short profits, prioritizing money over the health and security of our planet and our biosphere, which is, it's kind of important, you know, because, you know, we live here. And while the super wealthy can and are preparing for the Mad Max future and are well-versed in how to profit from disaster capitalism, you, me, and just about everyone we know will be left behind. Think about it this way. Go with me for a second. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, the United States economy transitioned with lightning speed to a war economy. Everything was turned into making weapons for war. We haven't looked back. We're still on a perpetual war economy. And while we were able to lend an assist to the Soviet Union to defeat Hitler. Yes, I'm sorry to break this to you, American first patriots. We do not get top billing in the World War II story. That would be the Soviet Union. The rest of the story of our transition to a perpetual war economy is truly horrific. Any honest assessment of our transition will yield a picture of death, torture, regime change, and profit for the elite few. 
on the scale that would make the Russian meddling in our election process look, well, pretty damn small in comparison. The silver lining in that lightning fast transition to a war economy and its sustained uh, a perpetual war economy for the past 80 years is that we can transition our economy very quickly to wind, to solar, and to renewables if and only if we view the attack that is currently happening on, happening on the climate in the same way as we viewed the attack on Pearl Harbor. All right, to discuss more about what Trump's war on the planet means, I'm joined now by Diana Best. Diana is a senior climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace USA, where she's currently leading the Hold the Line work aimed at halting the political and social influence of the oil industry during the Trump administration. So no small task. Diana, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So Trump did go big on coal, selling his plan as being all about jobs. At one point, making the argument that the coal miners love their jobs so much that this was reason enough to invest in clean coal. That is what this is all about, bringing back our jobs, bringing back our dreams, and making America wealthy again. Over the past two years, I've spent time with the miners all over America. They told me about the struggles they've endured. I actually, in one case, I went to a group of miners in West Virginia. You remember, Shelley. And I said, how about this? Why don't we get together? We'll go to another place, and you'll get another job. You won't mine anymore. Do you like that idea? They said, no, we don't like that idea. We love to mine. That's what we want to do. I said, if that's what you want to do, that's what you're going to do. And I was very impressed. They love the job. That's what their job is. I fully understand that. I grew up in a real estate family. And until this recent little excursion into the world of politics, I could never understand why anybody would not want to be in the world of real estate. <laughs> Believe me. So I understand it. And we're with you 100 percent. And that's what you're going to do. OK? First of all, is there such a thing as clean coal? I mean, I, I think we've all seen the slogans at various protests in March that there's no such thing as clean coal. Carbon capture and storage technology, which is, you know, the quote unquote clean coal technology has not been proven. Some industry executives even argue that CCS is a waste of time. Uh, I think the reality is that the world is really moving away from coal power, not just here in the U.S., but also abroad. Um, we've seen, you know, a complete almost 180 turnaround from countries like China. It's concerns around air pollution and health impacts of burning coal gain national attention. I think this awareness around the negative health impacts of coal is growing across the world. Uh, people now see that coal is damaging our water, it's damaging our air, our quality of life and our health. So no, there's no such thing as clean coal. And in fact, what we need to be doing is moving towards cleaner forms of energy like uh, wind, solar and storage. Well, then, I mean, a more, more difficult question Then talk about the international implications of what's happening today. Obviously, the United States can't solve this crisis on our on our own. Um, but what are the what are the what are your other countries like China, for example, um, going to do? Given how Trump is rolling back uh, some of these, uh, taking the handcuffs off, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think. The good news is, is that the world is moving on. Um, it's been moving on somewhat without us for a long time. We're seeing major shifts in Europe. We're seeing major shifts in other more developing countries, uh, where they're getting their energy from, how they're looking at their relationship to renewable energy, um, how they're valuing health and water impacts, um, maybe above fossil fuel interests, which is great. So I think today is definitely um, being felt across the world for sure. It's it's definitely a step in the wrong direction, but I think we, as a global community, know that we fighting climate change is going to be one of the single greatest threats to humanity, and we have to put one foot in front of the other and just keep moving forward on it. So Obama's clean power plan, which this new executive order takes, uh, takes a direct swipe at, hasn't been carried out yet because it's tied up in the courts, but if the CPP were to be enacted 
coal plants would be shut down. Future coal plants construction would be repealed and replaced to borrow for a phrase with wind, with solar and with other renewables. Assuming that this message has gotten to communities that are propped up by the coal industry, what do you say to coal workers and those communities about the way forward? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and and one that we should all consider um, really closely. So one, I would say that the the Clean Power Plan, yes, there was a a federal rollback, but we also have to accept that states have been moving forward, um, taking a leading role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions on their own with their own programs and their own set of standards. I think what this has done is created a national shift away from some of the traditional fossil fuel powers like coal. Yes, I think federal Climate legislation is incredibly important. The Clean Power Plan is incredibly important. But as I mentioned before, I think the world is really moving away from coal. I think as this relates to coal communities, I, you know, coal communities are hurting it are hurting right now, and there's absolutely no denying it. I think one of the things that unites us across the country is that people want really good jobs. They want to provide for their families for the long term. Um, I think this is a value that we can all share and appreciate. But I want to be really clear. I think Trump's latest executive order won't turn around the structural decline that we're seeing in the coal industry. We've seen mm-hmm. you know, people moving away from coal for a number of reasons. Yes, coal industry cronies might be pointing to Obama era or Obama administration era policies like the Clean Power Plan. But the reality is, you know, we've talked about the global shift away from coal, that some of these major uh, buyers of coal have started, you know, shutting their doors and saying we're looking at other technologies. I think that you know, surplus of cheaper natural gas in this country has also taken a huge hit of the coal industry, plus the declining cost of renewable energy. So I think going back to those communities, it's really important that we focus on telling the truth that we can't make empty promises that all of a sudden the coal industry is going to rebound and come back as strong as it was before. Um, I think what we need to do is be supporting miners that have been laid off through programs that support diversifying economies, that support a true just transition, um, that we're making sure we're not abandoning those communities and that we are together moving towards uh, economies which we know are going to be strong into the long term, like storage, clean energy, wind, solar, etc. One thing that we can take solace in, perhaps, is that an executive order is not right away the law of the land. Obama signed an executive order in his first days in office. We all remember to shut down Guantanamo Bay and that never happened. And Trump's two executive orders on travel restrictions, the Muslim ban one and two, were both shut down by the courts. Do you see any legal basis to fight the Trump energy independence executive order? You know, I think one of my favorite moments of the day, which was, you know, I think for folks at work in the environmental and energy field, today was a pretty hard day. A lot of stuff that people have worked on for many, many years, we saw rolled back. But one of the most exciting things that I saw today was that the New York Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, wasted no time. Um, he's already put out a statement that he's leading a coalition of 23 states, cities, and counties in opposing President Trump's executive order. Mm. So I think the courts are ready. Um, people are ready to say, absolutely not. We're going to hold the line on this work. Um, we're not going to see, you know, everything that we hold dear uh, in the EPA, uh, in the protections that we've put in place over many, many years, completely rolled back with this executive order. So I think there's a lot to come. How and what that will look like and on what timeline, I think is still a little unclear. But absolutely, I think people are ready to fight back against this latest executive order. Uh, that's excellent news. We'll stay tuned for that for sure. I want to shift finally to talk about uh, Keystone XL and the Dakota Access Pipeline briefly. Um, Keystone XL seemed like a definitive victory, one of very few that we that activists get to experience uh, that was rolled back with the uh, stroke of a pen, similarly with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, with Keystone XL, Bill McKibben has said, quote, the project will be fought at every turn. Um, what is the Greenpeace plans to fight the, the, the rollout of the Keystone XL Pipeline? Yeah, you know, we um, we are ready to fight this every step of the way as well with our allies and partners like 350, like the indigenous uh, 
community leaders like First Nations, farmers, ranchers, all of the folks that got together to fight this the first time around, we're ready to fight it again and we know we can win. I think there's a, a handful of obstacles that TransCanada, the company behind the Keystone XL pipeline faces right now. One, they don't have all their permits in place. There are still some extremely important and critical um, state permits that they're going to need to get. Two, I think, um, you know, we saw with the unbelievable power and strength of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation and all of the millions of people from around the world that came together to fight Dakota Access Pipeline, that people are not uh, going quietly along with the plans of these pipeline companies, people are ready to resist and fight these every step of the way from where we are right now, where it's still just a proposal and some of the pipeline is built all the way through construction. Um, and finally, TransCanada, the company, as I mentioned, behind the Keystone XL pipeline, we know that they're going to need to raise quite a bit of money if they're going to build this project. Um, I think that gives us a huge opportunity. As I mentioned, we saw with the Dakota Access Pipeline that there was extreme risk associated with that project, particularly for the banks and financial institutions that backed that. We saw reputational damage as well as just material damage and risk because the project kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back by the delays, the legal challenges, the permitting issues with that fight. I think this exact same applies for Keystone XL Pipeline and any bank that is associated with that project or is funding that project should expect the same level of scrutiny and risk. So there's a there's an awareness there in your response about a diversity of tactics in 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 fighting this. I was at um, <clears throat> Standing Rock in the first week of December when again what felt like and what we all kind of sensed was a temporary victory came down uh, when the Obama administration ha uh, did not allow the Army Corps of Engineers to grant the easement to continue that construction that obviously Trump has rolled back. Uh, but we have seen some minor victories with uh, banks uh, divesting from this project as well. And when it comes to that diversity of tactics, that's the last question I have for you in terms of your view and collaborating with groups like 350.org, because I know that they have done amazing work and, 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 and done a ton of uh, work in, in terms of raising this issue um, in terms of visibility. But during the Obama administration, a lot of activists expressed to me uh, a dissatisfaction with what they called a kind of soft glove strategy towards gently appealing to Obama to uh, come to his senses and not really holding his feet to the fire um, if you'll pardon the metaphor, I guess to put this another way, can 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 America be a, a leader in mitigating this climate crisis by simply electing better Democrats? I I think that's a really interesting question, and I think we're all living in this moment of you know shock and reassessing exactly how we're approaching these major environmental crises um, and projects and destruction that's happening uh, around the U.S. I think. My opinion is that it's simply not enough to work through the political process. I don't think it's a matter of just electing better Democrats, just electing better leaders. I think what we need is, first of all, we need to be completely changing the political and social license of fossil fuel companies um, until we've actually, until people understand the role that fossil fuel companies play in our politics, in our financial institutions, then I think we're actually not getting far enough. So I think that's one piece of it. I think another piece is we know that there is extreme, extreme risk of climate change, not just to our environment and how we live our lives, but also monetarily. I mean, I think this is something that more financial institutions are starting to come to grips with. Mm -hmm. You've seen major money managers around the world, as well as in the United States, saying that there's actually a cost now associated to their business of climate change happening. So I think as that as that becomes more of a reality, we also need to be changing the way the finance community looks at some of these infrastructure projects. Is this really a smart investment? Do we want to be putting our pension funds into things that are supporting further destruction of our earth and our environment? I think a lot of that's going to change, as well as trying to change the political process. You know, climate change is not a partisan issue. Um, we can't continue to assume it's a partisan issue. Absolutely, do we need stronger leadership? 
on the federal level without a doubt. But we also need that strong leadership on the state and local level as well. So I think it's really going to be a matter of, you know, shifting our entire perspective and really trying to undermine the license that fossil fuel companies have had with our politics and in society up until now. I do have one follow up because uh, I know that's, that was my last question, but you had <laughs> sparks. It sparks another idea in my head there. You talked about some market pressures as a way to mitigate the climate crisis. Is it your view that um, that Greenpeace could achieve their objectives, to put it uh, in an organizational frame, um, within the current system of capitalism? I think that's a, a, a challenging question and, and, and definitely not an easy one. I, I, I think there's bigger issues with the way that our current financial system works right now. However, I do think there are key leverage points and pressure points where we can be using financial institutions to stop destructive projects in the short term. In the long term, I think it's clear that we are going to need to uh, adjust the way that we do business uh, and what sort of business as usual looks like around the world as we face uh, more environmental disaster and climate change. Diana, I really want to uh, thank you for your time and your expertise and for the work that you are doing at Greenpeace USA. Please do keep us posted with your activities. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Diana Best is a senior climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace USA, and we'll be back after this. Folks, A Trump Show is supported by you, the listeners. Together, we're going to build a truly great, a truly huge podcast. And just like Donald Trump's wall, Mexico is not going to be paying for it. If you'd like to support the show with $5 a month or more, you can do that at atrumpshow.com slash donate. I'll say that again, atrumpshow.com slash donate. I want to thank some recent donors, Lisa Oaks, Kara Owens, Johnny Pop, Deb Tolson, Kathy, Michael, and Athena, all of whom donate to support the show. And you, listener, an individual sentient human being with free will, should evaluate whether you'd like to do the same with this knowledge. Karma is a boomerang. So thank you for considering your support at atrumpshow.com slash donate. Next up, Abby Martin of The Empire Files joins me to break down Steve Bannon's nationalism. Imagine with me a time in the future when a mass shooting or an attack of a similar scale as recently occurred in London happens here in the United States. Now imagine White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer stepping to the podium to introduce the president, Donald Trump, who's going to address the nation in a moment when our collective consciousness is in open wound in need of triage. Behind the scenes, Steve Bannon, the White House chief strategist, has publicly declared that the Judeo-Christian West is collapsing and the United States is in what he calls the fourth American turning, in which an all-out civilization war is not only inevitable, it has already begun. Now, these views would be easy to dismiss if Bannon was the editor of a widely discredited news website or the host of a fringe radio show, as was the case less than a year ago. Today, however, Bannon is Donald Trump's main ideas guy, which is troubling considering that Donald Trump consumes most of his day barking at cable news, tweeting or golfing. To wage this all-out civilization war that Bannon desires, Trump administration must expand the American nationalist movement that began with the alt-right championed by Bannon at Breitbart. Towards that end, Bannon told Vanity Fair in an interview during the campaign, quote, Trump is a blunt instrument for us. So joining me now to unpack the One Nation under Bannon and Bannon's plan for us is Abby Martin. Abby is the founder of Media Roots, serves on the board of directors for Project Censored, is the former host of Breaking the Set, and currently hosts Telesaurs, The Empire Files. And it is that show that recently produced an episode titled, succinctly, Abby Martin exposes <laughs> Steve Bannon. Abby, thanks very much for joining me on the program. Thanks so much. Can't get any more direct than that. Um, so the hell out of this guy. Yeah. So, I mean, Dick Cheney used to wear the crown of our uh, collective consciousness, kind of Dr. Evil. Uh, what's worse? Well, let's just jump right into it. You, you do yeah. a good job in the in the episode of trying to of walking the line of flirting with putting the label on Bannon of a white nationalist. Bannon vehemently denies the charge of white nationalism, 
but he proudly calls himself an economic nationalist. The internal logic makes sense. They're corporatist, globalist media that are adamantly opposed, adamantly opposed to an economic nationalist agenda like Donald Trump has. If you think they're gonna give you your country back without a fight, you are sadly mistaken. Every day, every day it is gonna be a fight. But who is fighting whom? What is this nation Bannon says he stands for and who does he consider part of it? Well, it's clear who he doesn't consider part of it. It's pretty dark here in Europe right now, but there's something actually much darker and that is Islam. Bannon doesn't even try to mask his anti-Muslim bigotry as a fear of terrorism as others do. He's clear in stating that Islam is a threat to white American Christian culture. To be brutally frank, I mean, Christianity is dying in Europe and Islam's on the rise. Let's talk about that. Bannon's views on Islam make Trump's Muslim ban look like child's play. If it were entirely up to Bannon, no Muslims would ever be able to enter the U.S. Why are you going through all this thing on vetting? Why even let him in? The opportunity cost to put in a structure to actually vet these people, the cost to do that, to what end? Can't that money be used in the United States? I mean, I think the issue is, should we just take a pause and a hiatus for a number of years? Do you see a distinction between, because Bannon's a good business person, right? And running Breitbart really runs on this kind of clickbait, uh, stoking the fears between a, between a belief system and carrying along people who are openly racist, the David Dukes of the world, and a belief system, an, an actual motivating uh, force behind uh, political action. Yeah. So, so if you look at the course of his life, it's actually really fascinating. I mean, people like to say that he's um, tapped into, you know, uh, people who are struggling. He's, he's nothing more than a Goldman Sachs guy. He is a money bundler. He's a Wall Street shill through and through. Um, that's what he started out as. People like to say, oh, he, he made all this money on Seinfeld. No, he just happenstance to be invested in some investment firm that money bundled and got some direct, like, you know, uh, basically lucrative things on Seinfeld. It had nothing to do with him investing in that. So then you move on to what he did after that. He invested in a firm called IGE, Internet Gaming's Entertainment, which essentially just, um, it was like kind of, it was kind of bizarre, Dennis. It just like, exploited World of Warcraft mining. Um, so it would collect all these fake virtual resources. And he somehow convinced Goldman Sachs to pour tens of millions of dollars into this company. And then you go into his apocalyptic film career. And he really, that's that's where he really shined. That's where you saw his ideology really thrive um, and foster. And, and that was everything from the final takedown of Occupy Wall Street to uh, a glowing film about Sarah Palin, who he also tried to hitch his wagon to. That didn't work out too well for him. Um, and then you go into, this is really fascinating, when he took over Breitbart, because this is what you're talking about, where he's capitalized on um, the hate, the anti-immigrant stuff, kind of that alt-right troll circles, and made it into a movement. Because Matt Drudge, founder and head of the Drudge Report, he's kind of an odd duck. He lives in a hotel. He's very, he doesn't really put himself out there that much. But he kind of handpicked um, Andrew Breitbart as well as Alex Jones, which which is very disturbing, especially in light of what's going on today, how Alex Jones is also somehow in the seat of power of the U.S. goddamn empire. But Drudge and Breitbart really latched onto each other at the beginning because he saw something in him that he could turn this aggregation that he had formed with the Drudge Report and turn it into kind of narratives around it, creating stories behind, um, you know, and I'm talking about hammering in on just isolated cases of immigrant crimes, black crimes, honor killings, you know, and put it together in this big narrative that makes it seem like Islam is a death cult and it is coming <laughs> to install Sharia law in America. Um, so, so, you know, that, that's, it's amazing because once Andrew Breitbart dropped dead at, at a young age, Steve Bannon was there to pick it right up and he controlled that content like a dictator. Well, and then talk about um, Bannon's view or vision for China. So when you look at what Bannon has said about China, <clears throat> he says that it's expansionist, first of all. He says that Islam and China are expansionist. Um, he, like you said, he believes in the fourth turning. He believes that we are in a clash of civilizations. He hates all immigrants, including Asian CEOs who are successful in Silicon Valley. But Bannon goes even further than most of his anti-immigrant counterparts. His nation doesn't even include highly educated, totally legal immigrants. In this 2015 recording, we hear Bannon rebuking Donald Trump on the matter. We've got to be able to keep great people in the country. We've got to create, you know, job creators. 
one man went to, I think it was Harvard, there was a story a month ago, went to Harvard, did well, good student, wanted to stay in the country, wasn't allowed to, went back to his home in India, started up a company, now it's a very, very successful company with thousands of people. He wanted to do that here. We have to be careful of that, Steve. You know, we have to keep our talented people in this country. Um, I think you agree with that. Do you agree? Well, I I got a tougher, you know, when two thirds or three quarters of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from South Asia or from Asia, I think on on, on on my point is that a country's more like sessions, a country's more than an economy. We're a civic society. Apart from immigrants, Bannon's ideology, as seen during his reign at Breitbart, heavily scapegoats African-Americans with racist depictions as welfare scammers and violent criminals. So while Bannon says he's just a nationalist, not a white nationalist, it seems that his nationalism doesn't apply to anyone other than white people. Um, He, because he feels like we're in a class of civilizations, because he feels like China's on the march and that Islam's on the march, he is being very aggressive. You see these generals in Trump's ear, as well as Bannon's ideas getting through, basically saying, what are you gonna do about North Korea? Mm -hmm. Um, after North Korea has these missile tests. And it's like, what do you mean, what is he going to do? I mean, Trump is surrounded by the most generals in any cabinet since World War II. So Bannon juxtaposed with the generals, I feel like with all these establishment figures telling Trump to do this and do that, I feel like he's going to go to Bannon as his most trusted guide and say, what should I do? And we know what Bannon is going to say he should do. I mean, Bannon is all about America first. He hates the fact that China has $10 trillion in you know, U.S. debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I honestly don't put it past Bannon to go to war with China to maybe absolve the debt. I mean, who knows what what these people are capable of with this whole economic nationalist agenda? It's terrifying. Well, and then we want to turn to the kind of movement or the resistance here in the streets for the final two questions, because you you end your episode with a little bit of a, a coda that celebrates this continued opposition when you say that while it's imperative to fight every member of the Trump administration, we need to understand the ideology behind their policies in order to best defeat them. That demands we expose figures like Steve Bannon and the entire system that subjects us to the will of such repugnant individuals. The fact that someone like Steve Bannon could attain such a high seat of power shows how illegitimate the system really is, how quickly steps toward progress can be reversed. The Democrats who are beholden to their own corporate interests and advocate the same racist wars cannot be trusted to lead any real opposition. The real resistance will come from what Bannon fears the most, a united, multicultural, progressive movement in the streets. This resistance, the both the hashtag and the real live people, this multicultural group of progressives out on the streets would, I think so, if you quiz them, say that simply winning back the House for Democrats in 18 and maybe installing Elizabeth Warren in 2020 as the president in the White House would be victory for the pink pussy cat uh, hat <laughs> crowd. Respond. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is this is bad. Well, I, oh, I forgot to say that he also Bannon also says there is, quote, no doubt the U.S. will go to war in the South China Sea in the next five to 10 years. So that's that's a little bit terrifying mm-hmm. um, as far as the progressive front. Yeah, I mean, that is what they fear the most, because if you look at what Breitbart targets, it's everyone who's not a white male. So that's what I mean by a progressive multicultural front, because this whole terminology of globalism and the fear mongering against globalism, hijacking what really is capitalism, neoliberalism, empire, this sort of imperialist agenda. That's what I see as globalism and the ills of globalism. So these people have hijacked that term and made it terrifying to accept other cultures and live in harmony with like other races and stuff. But as far as the Democrats, look, the Democrats cannot lead this fight. Um, They are sitting back and blaming Russia for everything that Trump is doing. They cannot take responsibility for their abysmal failure. They spent millions of dollars to defeat Keith Ellison. They couldn't even give progressives a symbolic victory Mm -hmm. um, to take over the DNC chair. So I do not see any hope in the democratic system whatsoever, Dennis. I don't know how many times, how many iterations of election cycles we need to go through to capitulate to the lesser of two evils. And this election cycle, if this doesn't tell people the Democrats are not the saviors, I don't know what will. It's time for us to start a new party, a new strong socialist oriented party. People want it. 60% 60% of Americans want universal health care. We need to stop letting these corporate oligarchs dictate what the agenda should be for the American people because we all agree on the same values and principles. We can't let the alt-right take control of this country, Dennis. 
I'm glad to hear you say that we need to start a new political party because I am still recovering from uh, this 2016 election cycle. And disclosure for listeners who don't know, I served for the better part of the, the first half of Jill Stein's presidential campaign as Jill's communication director. And then later, after an amicable split, I came back and produced a shit ton of video for Jill right up until election night on 2016. And we don't have to do a triage on the Green Party or on what I think we can, you know, decently say is an underperforming uh, campaign from from the Green Party and from Jill's national campaign. And I would include myself in that underperforming assessment. So it's not a it's not about attacking Jill. But what I didn't hear in the end of your show and what I didn't hear from you now is is saying that the Green Party is the electoral arm of the movement, which is a claim that they're trying to make. And they have recently adopted as part of their platform an anti-capitalist stance, pro-socialist stance. So when I, the old communication director in me, hears a prominent voice like you leave out the Green Party, and my mm-hmm. question is, uh, where, where, where do, where do the, where does that energy go uh, for people who don't want to go to the Democrats or the Republicans, and why hasn't it gone to the Greens? You, you've interviewed Jill, you've seen this close up. Oh, I love Jill. I think that she's amazing. But here's the problem: is that the Green Party at a national level does not, it, it doesn't organize and centralize its activities like socialist parties are doing across the country. And of course, Bernie's brand, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, of course, that membership is exploding. You have socialist party membership exploding. I think that people are turned off by the Greens because of, look, here's a perfect example of why I think that's not the way to go until they get their their shit together in a different way. Um, Every time that I've been at any event, like uh, someone will stand up and say, like, I'm I'm running for Congress as a green. I'm a poet. I'm an artist. And, and, and like, they're, they're just like, I just Googled, like, what does this, what does a congressman do? It's like, there's no training. There's no, like, it just seems to me like it's very just kind of thrown together. It's like, I want to run as a green here. And it's like, all right, go for it. We'll support you. And then you have that label. It's like, they need to be training people, whoever is more capable, like put them out front, stand behind people who are like Eugene per year. I mean, people who are extremely good speakers, have their shit together, understand the symptoms, understand the core problem and get up there and, and push these people to the limelight because I just feel like the Green Party candidates that I've seen around the country are not the people who I would even want to be throwing my weight behind. And I'm the kind of person who if I see someone that I believe in, I will 100 percent balls of the wall, put myself out there in support of this person. So I just think that Jill is was different. But how many Jills are there out there? Well, and Jill's campaign, I think, underperformed. The, I mean, I was with her on the on the night of the election, and um, there was the 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 response that Jill got. I think she went into that night thinking she was going to get three, four, maybe even flirt with five percent. Um, that didn't happen, and most people know Jill now from the the recount effort, and that effort has uh, caused a division within the Green Party of people right. accusing Jill of carrying carrying water for the Democrats. Um, so is so I guess. Was there an analysis from the Socialist Party then that said um, it would be easier to deal with a Clinton administration than it would be with a uh, a Trump administration? Or like Jill, did the Socialists say these are two uh, two equally evil options? Well, I also wanted to say that the whole adopting an anti-capitalist stance, why did it take so long? I mean, good God. It's like that. That's another thing. It's like the Green Party platform was so wishy-washy. It was almost trying to appeal to like too many people. It was such a wide net. It's like, dude, let's let's come on. 60, like 60% almost of youth in this country already reject capitalism. Like it's not that daring, you know, to take that leap. And so I just feel like, why did it take so long? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people in the socialist parties that I, that I know and, and me personally, I mean, yeah, I think that we all thought Clinton was going to win. Um, we all were hedging our bets on let's criticize Clinton as much as we can. She has this in the bag because we want to hit the ground running um, hold her feet to the fire immediately. We don't want to go back to that Obama mantra where it's like, don't criticize him for the first two years. Let's just, while he has control of the House and Senate, let's just take a step back and let him do his thing. Yeah, that really worked out, didn't it? So we wanted to really hold her feet to the fire immediately because we know that mass mobilization, mass grassroots organizing, and mass pressure is the only goddamn thing that's going to hold these people uh, you know, accountable for anything and force their hand to do any sort of legislation. So yeah, I mean, I think that that, that was the perception that a lot of people had was, okay, 
We know that Trump is not going to win. So let's just focus on Clinton. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at what Trump has done, I think that the biggest takeaway is why the hell does the executive branch has have so much power? I mean, it shows the ineptitude mm-hmm. that Obama uh, of Obama. It's like, wow, you had this much power to ram through legislation and you did nothing, nothing. Look at what Trump's doing. He's unraveling the whole country in a matter of two months, already starting wars on several fronts. I, it's stunning. It's stunning. It is stunning. So, yeah, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to leave it there. I want to uh, just say thank you and, and recommend to listeners out there who don't uh, already know to check out The Empire Files. It's totally a crucial Totally. I'm not from California. It's totally a crucial, <laughs> hella crucial, <laughs> hella, hella crucial uh, show to, to, to get us through these times. Empire Files uh, and its host, Abby Martin and producer, Abby Martin. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Dennis. Talk to you soon. All right. Peace. I, I, I reckon, I reckon almost everyone in this venue probably knows this next song. Okay. I think, I think that is the case. Sorry, you're not a All right, finally this week, I'm happy to fulfill a newly articulated mission of the podcast by highlighting not just the wisdom and knowledge of journalists like Abby Martin and the uh, end of activists and organizers like Greenpeace's Diana Best, but also of artists like my next guest. Rao Reynolds is the frontman for the punk electronica hybrid band Enter Shikari, currently on world tour swinging through the United States. Uh, Right now he's in Atlanta. Rao, thank you very much for joining me on a Trump show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So the current Enter Shikari tour in North America comes at a very unique time in United States history, um, in the aftermath of a very unique presidential election. It's interesting to note that cable news ratings are up when they usually plummet. Um, Now that we have a reality TV Twitter troll-in-chief. CNN's ratings are up 50%. The New York Times added half a million subscribers. Washington Post has seen a 75% of increase in new new subscribers. In short, for better or worse, Americans are actually paying attention now. Um, Do you feel any difference, you've toured North America before, um, in the reaction to the political aspects of your music on the current tour? Well, I mean, to be honest, because our audience is, I mean, there's diversity there, don't get me wrong, but it is a fairly sort of liberal, I mean, the music itself is quite progressive, so you get a very sort of liberal audience. Um, So the reaction is almost, you can sense a slight embarrassment because of being a British (laughs) band as well. It's almost like people kind of, they want to hear our thoughts on it but at the same time they're just like oh god they, they, they almost like feel the need to apologize or something like you know that this 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 man doesn't reflect me he doesn't reflect our country sort of thing um so i, I found that quite interesting um you've talked about the influence of the zeitgeist movement in your life and in your music and in your lyrics can you summarize for our listeners um what the zeitgeist movement means to you and how it has affected how you go about approaching your music uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, well, f- for me, that the Zeitgeist movement was the kind of the first thing that really woke me up into kind of global politics and uh, how to design a society, sort of thinking more broadly and trying to think with, with a wider perspective. Um, I, I remember seeing the, the first movie um, when I was you know, very young and it kind of we'd been involved um, in our local kind of punk scene for a while and, and had had various um, sort of fights with our local council. They've, they've been trying to shut down youth services and gigs and things. So we were kind of politicized quite young in terms of a local scale. Um, but I remember the, the Zeitgeist movement was just something that really opened me up um, 
to the global politics and was just a, a source of information really and a source of kind of thinking a bit more uh, philosophically about things and not being cowered by the, the sort of might of all these structures that we're born into and it's, it's you know it's all about actually thinking about the the structural changes that that could be made and and moving forward to a, to a sustainable world yeah i i um i'm in, i'm located outside of boston i missed you guys when you came through boston because of work commitment but i i want to talk a little bit about it was an all ages show and I'm old enough to have benefited from going to an all ages show to minor threat and Fugazi back in the eighties when, right. you know, wow. I couldn't have gotten in if I wasn't old enough. Is that, is that, uh, is that part of your philosophy making your music accessible to all ages? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we grew up in a, in a sort of strange time when, when music was very tribal, um, people identified themselves Kind of, kind of their whole selves by one sort of narrow strain of the musical spectrum um, and for us that always felt strange um, and the the other thing that felt strange was kind of either being embarrassed by a young fan base or or, or feeling sort of a bit uh, kind of I don't know decrepit almost by having a, a just an older fan base or something um, and for, for us you know it, it didn't it, none of that stuff just mattered that all seemed seemed very strange to worry about who was listening to music it, it was it was more about um providing a place where community could actually be harnessed because uh, you know obviously with the with the downfall of of religion and and kind of living in a world that is just so naturally divisive um just you know the the very structure of capitalism brings that sort of dog eat dog nature so for us music was just it was just something that it's always been it's something to bring people together indiscriminately um and something we're, we're very proud to to still be able to at least attempt to do the i have some comedians who are friends who talk to me often about uh doing political work in uh, polit- political material in their sets and they say you know anytime you do political material as a comic you're going to alienate at least half of the audience uh if you're talking about anti-capitalist zeitgeisty type of stuff uh and i've worked with the green party here in the united states um you're talking about stuff that in the united states the two-party system isn't you're going to alienate 99 percent of the audience (laughs) (laughs) is you know is do you feel that kind of tug of war um in terms of what's marketable and what's saleable or are you comfortable in your niche speaking to uh, the people that your music is resonating with. Yeah, that's an interesting. Well, I think we sit in a in a weird sort of position because I mean, even if we just start musically, our, our music certainly isn't kind of middle of the road, mainstream, easy listening music. Um, mm-hmm. It's very progressive. It has inspirations from all types of, of genres and eras. Um, so, so even then, it's not yeah the easiest thing to get you, into. I don't think the primary purpose of your life, of my life, and the entirety of the human race is just to blindly consume to support a failing economy and a faulty system forever and ever until we run out of every resource and have to resort to blowing each other up to ensure our own survival. I don't think we're supposed to sit by idle whilst we continue to use a long outdated system that produces war, poverty, collusion, corruption, ruins our environment and threatens every aspect of our health and does nothing but divide and segregate us. I don't think how much military equipment we're selling to other countries, how many hydrocarbons we're burning, how much money has been printed and exchanged is a good measure of how healthy our society is. But I do think I can speak for everyone when I say, we're sick of this shit! Um, So we're often sort of playing to, like you say, just a very sort of small niche kind of... Uh, group of people that, that get it, if you like, um, and then if you you add in the lyrics, which are, well, my uh, listeners yeah. who aren't familiar should know that you're playing in some huge stadium shows too, and even your tour now is not tiny little clubs here, and you're playing you know thousand plus seat arenas. Yeah. <laughs> Oh! <laughs> 
Well, we, well, I think, I mean, I was brought up on like Motown and Northern Soul, basically. My dad was a DJ. So for me, melody is, is always kind of the, the most important thing. So our music does have that sort of pop sensibility and it does kind of occasionally get the chance to poke its head out of the underground and in, into the mainstream. So I think that that's why we sit in that sort of strange position where we, we do get a lot of people who perhaps aren't just, you know, into punk rock or just into like edm um that they'll uh, they'll get our music and, and understand it and obviously then when you add in the lyrics which are uh, again for far from just uh recycled uh, homogenized you know banal lyrics of, of pop music um they're they're, they're quite sort of uh, daring in places or you know we're just not afraid to speak our mind and I think I think that's just basically comes down to the philosophy of how, how we think about art um, you know it, it, we're not doing it's not to us it's not a commodity it's not like we want um, we're not doing this to get our music out to be sold and to become big you know it's more about getting ideas out there and to um, yeah, to prosper in that sort of realm, really. Yeah, and I don't want to throw a label on you that you don't want to wear, but it, it, you know, if if those of us who are working in kind of an anti-capitalist umbrella, we have to struggle with some contradictions in the modern world. You know, I'm talking, oh, absolutely. I'm talking to you, you know, through my MacBook Pro that was made by slave labor who would, you know, launch themselves out of a building and kill themselves if they so could um, and have, you know. And so uh, uh, what, what contradictions are you aware of um, uh, that pull at you uh, as you're writing new lyrics? You know, I, mean, I saw that you mentioned that... Uh, a, new, a time that you often write new lyrics for new songs is when you're, on the, when you're on the road. So what are you writing now that we're going to hear in the future about some of these contradictions that we're struggling with? Well, yeah, there's so many. I think the one that, that comes up most for us is is to do with climate change because we, we speak a, a lot about that and, and a lot of the art tries to reflect uh, the, the current uh, situation, the predicament that humanity is in and our, you know the whole biosphere is in, really. Um and I think when you're a band that tours the world, i.e. flies many places, uses um, <laughs> very carbon intensive forms of travel, um, of course, the, the hypocrite uh, label gets thrown around and the, 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 there's those the contradictions there that we have to deal with. So it's, it's really difficult because I, I don't really know what, what the answer is there. I think the only thing is if, if we were to sort of cave in to the the sort of minority of people that think that's hypocritical, um, you would then perhaps get a situation where any form of, of music um, that is uh, speaking about climate change um, vanishes. <laughs> and I'm not really sure that's, that's a good thing because music is, in effect, it's, it's another form of media. It's another form of the press, especially when, uh, you know, so many people have so many negative things to say about the, the press at the moment. I think music can be a can be a great thing for getting ideas out there and into the mind. Um, so that's kind of the only way I can I can battle it really. Like with without music that speaks about um, climate change and perhaps uh, I don't think we we particularly inspire um, you know changing the world, but I think it could be good fuel like fuel for activists. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, fuel for community, um, and yeah, various other positives. As we talk, I had to pause Donald Trump's live press conference announcing the rollback of of even the kind of uh, gains that Obama was trying to put in place in terms of stalling uh, human-induced climate change. So that, if you're paying attention to U.S. politics, is happening today. Chalk up another uh, positive thing of Trump. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, that, that, that is like the, the most, I mean, there's many scary things about the man uh, and about uh, everyone around him. But I think obviously climate change affects absolutely everyone. Um, and we're in that, that really 
scary situation where it, it, we, it really is now or never. Um, I mean, I've already heard some sort of climate scientists saying that the time to do something was yesterday. So we've kind of almost mm-hmm. missed that that golden window of, of opportunity of starting to scale back and and create that new that new uh, sort of climate friendly structure. But yeah, it's scary. Well, let's relieve ourselves, you and I both, of of saving the world for the moment and um, talk about. I want to talk about uh, among my favorite. Uh, Enter Shikari songs is Gandhi mate Gandhi um, <laughs> I love the juxtaposition between political outrage um, and humor and I, I want to try to describe it for listeners in words um, you open with kind of a 40 second anti-consumerist anti-military anti-capitalist rant then you follow that's followed immediately by some super playful goofy bouncy drum and bassy groove that sounds like it could be Sounds like it could be a soundtrack for like a Flintstones ecstasy party. And then that's followed by <laughs> kind of a punk rock rage fest. And then that breaks down by your bandmates going, dude, dude, calm the fuck down. It's called Gandhi, man. Gandhi. So I'm interested in how you come to or what's the importance for you in that juxtaposition between this kind of righteous outrage and joy and goofball comedy? Well... I, th- I think it's just a fairly natural thing. Like oh, I'm always quite confused when, when people like to, or like vehemently like to separate, like any sort of sense of uh, serious political issues or social commentary, and and humour. Uh, I, I think the two just go go hand in hand. Um, and I think if you use humour, that doesn't mean that you know the the content isn't serious. Um, it's just another way of of kind of getting people's attention, um, and it's, it's you know it's a more enjoyable way to speak about serious issues than. Uh, I mean, we we often get sort of criticised if if we get kind of you know broadsheet newspaper reviews. They, I'm not. I think they they kind of expect us to do a, a 200 page uh, um, sort of uh, do, you know list of all our demands uh, very very detailed verbose um, sort of thing but obviously that's not what you're going to get from a, from a punk rock band so um, yeah no I think we it's for us humor is just another another tool it's just another artistic tool yeah. so a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down even in the punk rock world <laughs> absolutely yeah. um, is there one song on your current tour because you're you are playing some old older music that's resonating in a way that's different or in a way that's surprising um is there one that sticks out for you yeah i I, there's i mean some of these songs we we haven't played in like eight nine years um so it's 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 quite it's very nostalgic you know quite emotional really Uh, and there's one song in, in particular that sort of far surpassed any initial uh, kind of reasoning I, I put into the song um, and it's, it, the track's called Adieu um, and it, you know it's, it's it's basically a song about not, not particularly a love song but a song about love and, and the power of love and the importance of love um, and that, that feels like we kind of it kind of resonates now more than, more than ever really um, both sort of politically and personally and yeah it's just it's it's very enjoyable to play live as well you know it's something that it's one of those songs where just everyone sings along and the the i, I wear in-ear monitors um uh, sort of yes small headphones that are shaped to the to the uh, uh my inner ear um that is how how i monitor what i'm i'm uh, playing and stuff and um mm-hmm. usually the, the crowd can be so loud that they'll they'll get past even that so um yeah it's it's a really great moment in the set wow Raul reynolds it's really been a pleasure to get to speak to you a little bit i appreciate the time yeah thanks so much for having me man okay and this is adieu by enter shikari which will play us out a trump show is written and produced and hosted by yours truly you can subscribe on itunes and wherever you get your podcast feed by visiting a trump show.com also consider connecting with me on social media i'm at Dennis Trainer, that's T-R-A-I-N-O-R-J-R on Facebook and at Twitter. And this is a new show. It's growing because you are awesome people and you are sharing this with your friends and some of your enemies on social media. Thank you. Please keep that up. Until next week, I'm Dennis Trainer Jr. And this was a Trump show. <laughs> <laughs>